When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Thank you for reading the scripture. Um, and again, that was Acts chapter 7, 51 through 60. Um, and that's the end of chapter 7. I'm going to deal with the whole of 7, which is a big chunk, but uh, um, we're going to try to get through this without um, taking two hours. But you, got, you guys are going to stay for a two-hour sermon, right? Amen, amen, amen. <laughs> um, uh, and again, that was the New International Version of the Bible. And we are in the Book of Acts series. We're continuing on. We're marching through the summer in the Book of Acts. Um, the Spirit-Infused Multi-Ethnic Church, and today's sermon I've entitled God's Exiled Leader, and this is a loving scripture series from Renew Church. Thank you for those who of you who have been tuning in. It's been, a, it's been so fun for me to go through Acts, and I hope it's been good for you. Um, but previously in Acts, if you remember um, that a conflict arose among this growing community of Christians. And the conflict arose uh, around the distribution of food to widows. And a complaint arose from the Hellenist widows against the Hebraic widows. And th this is a cultural tension we talked about last week. The Hellenists, uh, Hellenists were uh, Greek-speaking Jews, essentially. Uh, Jews who were probably a part of the diaspora or kind of being in other countries outside of Jerusalem, outside of Judea, and they spoke Greek and were culturally Greek, but they retained their heritage, their bloodlines, uh, Jewish bloodlines. Um, and they were among this new, uh, new converts, Christians. And the Hebraic Jews were the Jewish Aramaic speaking Jews in Jerusalem. And so uh, to resolve this conflict, uh, the apostles chose seven leaders, seven men um, who were Hellenists. All their names are Greek and they were Hellenists. And so uh, to uh, wait on tables so that that would free up the apostles having to deal with this issue and be able to preach. From there, um, our passage, from there the camera starts to zoom in on one man from that list of seven men, and that man is Stephen. And we don't know how much time passes between when Stephen was elected as one of these seven men to be deacons or to oversee um, the, the distribution of food to the widows. But immediately what's next is that not a story of Stephen uh, passing out food, but it's a story, it says, the scripture says um, at the second half of 
chapter 7, that Stephen begins to do many wonders and works um, in the name of Jesus, and that people begin to gather around him. And so a target, like this is the same thing that happens with Peter and John and the apostles, right? They begin to do signs and wonders and they begin to preach about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that gets the attention and the ire of the priests of the temple. Now Stephen is doing the same thing and conflict is starting to rise. He starts to get heat and the heat he gets, he gets is from a synagogue, the synagogue of a freeman. And synagogues, so there's the main temple in Jerusalem and the synagogues are like, you know, uh, satellite um, places of worship uh, where teaching is done and the reading of scripture is done. So the priest at the synagogue of the freemen, and they, if you read the names um, in chapter seven of where these men come from, they're also Hellenists. So it's Hellenist priests like Stephen who are priests in the synagogue of the freedmen, they're beginning to argue with them. They're beginning to push back. And what he says begins to anger them so much that they grab a hold of him and they drag him to the council, to the Sanhedrin. And on the way, it's almost like this riotous scene, right? They grab him and they drag him. This Stephen, and on the way, they bribe different people to give false testimony and false witness about what Stephen is saying. They, and so the Sanhedrin brings him forward and he's put on trial and people bear false witness. And the main accusation given to Stephen that we see in chapter seven is one, is twofold. One, that Stephen is preaching against, teaching against Moses, meaning, and that's a symbol for them of the law. So Moses is the one who brought the people of God at Sinai, the commandments or the law of God. And so uh, Stephen is allegedly challenging Moses, the tradition of Moses, the tradition of the law and challenging the law. Secondly, so blasphemy against Moses. And the second accusation is blasphemy against the temple. So like Jesus, they're, they say, they're saying, Stephen is saying, I'm going to destroy the temple. The, the temple sh should be destroyed and, and something new will come. So um, blasphemy against the temple was a huge deal. So Stephen's charge in some is blasphemy against Moses and the law and against the temple. And then we get Stephen's defense, Stephen's speech. And Stephen's speech is actually the longest in Acts. We remember we had two speeches before this from Peter, uh, sermons or speeches or defenses from Peter. Stephen's is much longer. It's Stephen retells the story of Israel's history from his perspective. And we don't, again, we don't need to trace the entire speech, uh, but I wanted to point out some main themes because I think this will lead us to understanding of what happens um, at the end of this chapter, um, the martyrdom, the stoning of Stephen, and why people are so angry at him. First, uh, one of the themes that we need to focus on, uh, that Stephen focuses on as he's telling um, the history or retelling as a storyteller. He's narrating the history of the people of Israel. Is this focus on the people of God 
being a people in transition, the people of God being sojourners, the people of God being a pilgrim people, a people in transition. God calls Abraham away from his people, away from his home and says, I will make you a great nation, but you must leave your people and leave your country. And so Abraham, the beginning of the people of God, the beginning of Israel is a call out from home and security into being a pilgrim person, being Abraham, being on the move. And so verse four and, and verse five, uh, Stephen says, God sent him, Abraham, to, his, to this land, the land that we are in right now, Israel, Judea, where you are now living. Verse five, he gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on, but God promised that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time, Abraham had no child. And this, this kind of character of the people of God in, in their onset, in the beginning with the call, the original call to Abraham as a pilgrim people, as a people in, uh, in, uh, in transition, as a people of the promise. So what is at the center of the people is a promise, right? It's not a place. It's not even an inheritance. It's not even, uh, there was no inheritance there. There was no land that they owned. They were for Abraham was called to be a foreigner in a strange land. And all he had was this promise, this covenant with God. And so this people being shaped um, through the call of Abraham um, has nothing to, has, has no land, right? And no home, a homeless people almost. And uh, Willie James Jennings um, in his commentary on Acts says, this quote god took hold of abraham and made him new by turning him into a sojourner and making him into something new by creating a people who were sojourners imagine a people created only by a promise from god and who will live only in a land through that very promise this promise people could carry and here's the key the vulnerability and fragility that comes with waiting. The waiting is everything. It is the time and place for meeting with God. There in the waiting, God revealed the divine name, expose holy mood and manner, and constantly give gracious word. That's Willie James Jennings. Right? So there's no security, established security. There's only a promise, and in that promise is waiting. But in that waiting, the people is shaped. Imagine Abraham and Sarah. They were old, and they had no children, and yet God was promising uh, descendants, and a nation would be formed out of them. So there's this waiting, right? Waiting uh, for the promise that becomes a character of who God's people are, sojourners. The second theme, so that's eight, so that's the story of Abraham. And then Stephen, you know, briefly goes through the uh, Abraham's sons and their sons, kind of the patriarchs. Um, and then he gets to Joseph. 
Um, and in the story and kind of the relaying the story to Joseph, one of the themes that comes out here is the theme of being rejected by people, by humankind, yet approved by God. So here you get this notion of the rejected prophet or the rejected deliverer. And so in verse 9, Stevens relays, Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. And this way he's drawing connection between Joseph's brothers envying Joseph, being jealous of Joseph, because Joseph was continuing the dream of the promise of being the promised people and of God saying, I am going to deliver you. I am going to make you a nation. I am going to make you great. Joseph was taking on this dream, but in his confidence, in that hope, in that promise, in his confidence of his vision, right? His brothers get jealous and sell him to, into slavery, into Egypt. And so Stephen is drawing another connection here as he's making his defense that there's that Joseph's brothers are just like the priest today right now who are trying who are trying Stephen and before who are trying the other apostles the jealousy of the priests rejecting God's leader God's prophet God's deliverer and so there's this parallel you are still rejecting God's leader Stephen goes on, and this time he moves to Moses. And the theme, as he tells the story of Moses, kind of what he's, what the theme that he's bringing out in that is uh, the people's rejecting, a continuation of people's rejecting God's leader, God's prophet, and God's deliverer. It was this Moses, chapter 7, verse 35, whom they rejected whom God now sent as both uh, uh, ruler and liberator. Remember, Moses was raised by Pharaoh's daughter. Moses came up in the royalty of Egypt, the oppressor. God continued to multiply the people, even though they became enslaved. And so you see kind of a, a connection. Just as God multiplied um, the Hebrews, uh, people under in oppression God is also multiplying in acts this new Christian community in the midst of persecution but Moses having a heart for his own people but being in Pharaoh's court remember he sees two uh, two uh, Hebrew people fighting and he tries to reconcile them and they say who are you our deliverer our judge get away from here and then he sees an Egyptian person beating on a Hebrew and he kills the, uh, he kills the Egyptian. Once again, he's, he, he's bicultural, right? Moses is a leader in exile. He's bicultural, both Egyptian in culture and Hebrew in blood. And he chooses, he sees, he has a heart for his Hebrew brothers, right? And kills even an Egyptian in order to uh, uh, save and act justice uh, for this Hebrew and yet he's rejected so he runs he runs to Midian and he lives in exile where he gets married he raises a family God makes a covenant with him the covenant of circumcision 
and uh, but then he returns and this one who was in exile and who was rejected by the people actually becomes God's man God's leader to deliver the people into salvation but even as Moses leads the people in the, the wilderness the story of the exodus is full of the people going back and forth between uh, faithfulness and apostasy faithfulness and apostasy following and being yes thank you god we follow you we're your people to rejecting moses reject disobeying god rejecting god and saying we wish we could go back to egypt we're gonna die in this wilderness so going back and forth between faithfulness and faithlessness and so moses began in Stephen's eyes, and his telling of the story begin, is like a Jesus figure. And in fact, Moses, Joseph, and Abraham are like a Jesus figure. They're God's leader, but this isn't like a place of good, like this isn't a comfortable position. God's deliverer, God's savior, God's prophet is always rejected by the people. God's prophet is often killed. God's prophet is not listened to. God's prophet lives in exile. God's prophet doesn't have a palace or a kingdom or a castle or many lands and riches. God's prophet is in the wilderness. And it's this being in the wilderness and waiting, not knowing in transition, being a pilgrim people, which identifies faithfulness that builds the character uh, of God's people. And whether it's in punishment or because God calls his people out to transition, out to the wilderness, out to being in exile, there's something that is forming and shaping about that. And that's where Stephen switches to tell the story of the temple, right? In the desert, in the wilderness, God gave instructions to Moses for a tabernacle, a, basically a tent, because they were on the move. They were a pilgrim people. He wanted a simple, a place of worship for the people where when they looked at it, there was like, that's where God's presence is and that's what guides us, a tabernacle, a tent. This was not a house. This was not the great temple in Jerusalem. It was moving because it says that God was in motion, that this, his presence is not in one place, but continuing to move. And the people were guided by God's presence. And yet it was King David, which Stephen now turns to, David that asked God, let me build you a house in which you can dwell. And David was not even able to build that house. It was only until Solomon, many, many, many uh, years, decades later, who actually built the temple. But he built it as almost this house that God can live in. And so there's a shift there between the tabernacle and the temple and kind of how people view the presence of God. And this is Stephen's point. You miss you're letting go of the, your character of being a pilgrim people and being in motion and in transition. And he says, however, the Most High 
does not live in houses made by human hands. Solomon built God's house. But that's not the point. The Most High God does not live in houses. God is a pilgrim God. In the wilderness, the tabernacle was the visible tent for the presence of God to the people. But it wasn't a structure that contained God. God's Shekinah glory. God's presence. You can't contain God. You can't control the Spirit of God. God is a God on the move. And now, Stephen, in his speech, in his defense, right? Stephen is on trial. But what's happening with Stephen's speech is he's flipping the script, right? He's turning it back on the Sanhedrin and putting the Sanhedrin on trial, the Sanhedrin on notice, right? Basically, he's saying, just like they tried to make the temple, the temple is not a house of God. You've made the temple into this house that people have made by human hands that can contain and control God, that God will reside in that place. But really, it's become a rigid, right? Based on rigid law, just trying to put God in a box. And what they had been putting on uh, Stephen on trial for, right? Remember, was blasphemy against the law and blasphemy against the temple. And Stephen, flipping the script, is putting them on trial and saying, No, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. You have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And actually, as I tell this history, our history is the history of people being disobedient, rejecting the voice of God, rejecting the prophets and the leaders that God raised up, rejecting the spirit of God, and idolizing things made by human hands. Because we like to be anchored. We like to have control. We like to know what's happening. And waiting is too hard. That's why we see the people at the foot of Sinai as Moses is receiving the law and told them to wait there and wait. A pilgrim people are supposed to know how to wait because in waiting there's growth and waiting there's intimacy with God. But the people could not wait. They had to worship something so they melt all the gold and build this golden calf to worship something. But the irony is the thing that they're worshiping is actually what they created themselves with their hands because they couldn't wait for the real thing. There's value in waiting. There's value in the journey. There's value in waiting for the presence of God and the Spirit of God to, to lead us. But we sell out. We choose something much less. We choose actually the things that are below us in order to worship and give us security and salvation because we can't wait for the real power of God to come and deliver us and save us. And that's what Stephen is saying to the Sanhedrin. You're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. The law isn't on It's not just the stone tablets Moses gave. The law isn't this rigid, immovable thing that you guys are manipulating and controlling with your traditions. And the temple of God, the presence of God, the worship of God isn't limited to this 
beautiful structure of stone and ornaments and gold and all of these things that you built with human hands. You're, you're worshiping the calf. You're worshiping something that is static. You're worshiping something that's built with your own hands because you haven't waited on the true power of God to lead you, the Spirit of God. So you're saying, I'm blaspheming your law and the temple? You're blaspheming the presence and the Spirit of God, which you have been witnessing these days. Are you with me, church? So the main point that Stephen makes in his speech is this. You priests, you religious leaders of Israel, you men are always resisting the spirit. Just like your forefathers did. And this is just like they did with Moses, just like they did with Joseph, just like they did with Abraham, right? Just as they tried to uh, build a temple for you, for God, and put God in a house, you are doing the same thing. You're resisting the spirit. You're killing his prophets. You stiff-necked men. You're uncircumcised in heart. Right? Even that ritual of circumcision as a covenant of God's people, that's just a, a physical symbol. Right? It's not the spirit of the law. Right? And that's what spirit, Stephen is saying. It's all about circumcision of the heart. Where is your vulnerability and fragility as a dependent people? Conscious dependence on the spirit of God on a daily basis. Like being real with God. Rather than having all of these buffers and all of these things um, you depend on outside of God. And this is why they get pissed. <laughs> because Stephen says, you killed, this is Jesus. He says the righteous one, the one. He makes a reference to Jesus. You killed him. Once again, like Peter's sermon. You killed him. You are just like your father's stubborn so it's interesting how St stephen uses history but gives a truer picture of history a truer story in his storytelling to reveal the sin right and the stubbornness of the the rulers the religious rulers of egypt or of the temple it's the same of any history right um we in education um, we talk about classical history, like education and classical history. You know, whatever that means. Here are the triumph of the United States, you know, our forefathers who came with this vision, you know, manifest destiny to like, you know, go west and like bring Christianity to uh, the new world, right? And all of these stories where we glorify um, um, the, 
our fine, founding fathers. Christopher, we used to like study about Christopher Columbus, 1492, sailed the ocean blue, and he just—he was the great discoverer of America. That's one story, yeah. But as we progress as a culture, as a society, with different, you know, honoring different ethnicities and histories, Native American, African American, Asian American. Um, just kind of the diversity of our country, we realize that there's another story, a truer story, a more insidious story, right? Actually, Christopher Columbus saw the people as savages, brought disease and executed them for his own purposes, right? That's a different kind of history. And that's what Stephen is telling the real history the history is one of God who's faithful and gracious, right? And people being faithless and rejecting the prophets and rejecting God's leader and not trusting in God's promise and refusing to wait. And so he's saying, that's what you did with Jesus too. You guys aren't heroes, right? Our history is not about a history of heroes. It's a history of faithlessness. And they rage. Right? They rage. The scripture says, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of the young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Ooh, they were gnashing their teeth. First, this image of silent rage and the continuation of mob mentality and the riot. They're so angry and they're covering their ears. I don't want to hear anymore, right? If you have heard the sound of people gnashing, uh, grinding their teeth at night, ugh, it's like, that's what they're doing. They're rubbing, they're clenching their jaw so struck tightly that they're gnashing their teeth. It's making a grinding sound. And then later they rush them all at once. It says they scream. I don't know what the scream sounded like, but they're covering their ears. They don't want to hear no more. Another example of them being stiff-necked, right? And closing their ears to the truth of the word, the truth coming from the prophet, this Hellenist man. And... Um, the question for us is this. We need to embrace times of transition. Amen.
Stephen is on trial, but he has tried the Sanhedrin. And if you look at his trial, there are many similar elements with Jesus's trial, right? How they bring false witnesses against him. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and John all talk about this. How they talk about how Jesus said, I will destroy the temple in three days, raise it up again. He's talking against the law of Moses. He's speaking against the temple. Did, you know, all of these, the sham trial, you know, the riot, the mob mentality, very similar. And at the end, Stephen, Stephen even saying, you know, forgive them, God. They are not ready yet. Just like Jesus, forgive them for they know not what they do at his death. Stephen is, I think Luke is bringing out Stephen as this Jesus-like person in his sacrifice, in his, in his killing. Um, that the same things, you know, that Jesus was saying and the temple and the religious leader and the people were resisting and rejecting is the same thing they're rejecting in Stephen and they can't hear it. They can't hear it. Embrace times of transition, the times of homelessness, the time of exile. If you truly believe that God is a powerful God and that God is real, then these times in transition or not knowing or struggling are times where we, you can grow in your waiting and your faith will grow and your relationship will grow. And God's promise has never been the land itself. You'll get this. You'll, you'll get to build this. You'll have this inheritance. Right? Ultimately, it's the presence of God, God's love surrounding us and embracing us. And then Stephen's graciousness when he, even in death, right? It says he went to sleep, right? It was peaceful. Stoning is not a fun way to die, but he delivers his spirit up to God, just like Jesus, right? And there's a peace about it because God's presence is with him, right? Stephen has arrived to that point of the promise, like God's presence is with me and he's protecting me and I'm at peace, so much at peace that even though the stones are hitting me, I can say, don't forgive these people. The other thing that tells us is no one is irredeemable. Even these people who are casting the, throwing the stones at Stephen, they're not irredeemable. And you aren't irredeemable. No matter what you've done in your life, God can redeem you. God has grace for you. God can forgive you. And we're going to see that in the next, a, late, a little later on, because we have a foreshadowing here. The people who throw stones at Stephen, you know, you can't ha wear your robes and throw stones well. So they're taking off their jackets. They're taking off their robes. They're laying it at the feet of a young man named Saul. And that's a foreshadow because we're going to see Saul will begin to be the worst persecutor of the church. And yet he's not irredeemable. God changes his life around. Let God transform your life. Wait on God. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word.
Thank you for the witness of the apostles, the witness of Stephen, uh, and the early people in the church who stood against persecution to speak the truth, to tell the story, the true story. Help us to get the story right. The story uh, of scripture that is the greatest love story ever told. And it speaks of your love for your people, your love for us, even when we reject you, even when we go on our own way, you still are there offering redemption. You still are bringing people into our lives to turn us around, to deliver us, to offer salvation. And ultimately you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to save us. And in times where it's hard to wait and in this pandemic and economic crisis and this waiting for, ah, when can I, when will we all meet again? Help us to know that your, your presence is not contingent on a building or a, a structure or whether we're in church building or not, but your presence is with us now help us in this pilgrim in this time of transition to embrace our pilgrim identity as a people of exile as a people in the diaspora in the presence of your holy spirit in the name of your son holy father amen